0: My name is Father Gregory Pine, and I'm an assistant director for the Thomistic Institute, and it's my joy to welcome you back to the Thomistic Institute podcast for this most recent off-campus conversation. Uh, This time, I'm glad to be joined by Professor Catherine Pakalik. Thanks so much for joining.
1: You're welcome. Glad to be here.
0: Okay, so uh, many listeners of the TI podcast will have heard lectures that you have given on a variety of cool subjects. Um, Some may know you Uh, By other means, still by your publications. More on that later. Uh, But for those who don't, would you just say a word about who you are, where you're from, what you do?
1: Sure. Um, So I teach at the Catholic University of America, which is um, gratefully right across the street from the Dominican House of Studies. So we're over in Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn and Washington D.C. Some people call it Little Rome, and I love that. Um, So let's see. I teach in the business school. So I'm an economist by training, and As an economist, I worked on questions related to education, um, economics of education, models of education. That's one of the ways I first encountered Edith Stein's work. Um, But anyway, so people know me over there as, you know, somebody who teaches economics, um, and then I teach some other courses related to that, you know, economics of education, family studies, demography, things like that. Um, I also live in Maryland um, with my husband, who's a philosopher, and sometimes does work with the TI. As well. And then we've got a nice uh, house full of kids.
0: When you say a nice house full of kids, sometimes <laughs> people say house full of kids and they're like, we have three kids. Sometimes people say we have a house full of kids and we have seven kids. <laughs> if memory serves, do you have between you 15?
1: Uh, we do between us 15. But <laughs> they don't all live in the house at the same time. Uh, I don't think all 15 have ever lived in the house at the same time together. Okay. So, so, yeah, at the moment we have four children that are school-aged and still living at home. We have two in college who live at home, but um, depending on my mood, I count them or I don't count them. They, <laughs> they live at home, but they go to Catholic University, one in music and one in engineering, and then, um, then the rest are all either married or studying somewhere else.
0: Yeah, yeah. incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, at, at one point, Father Bonaventure uh, was reading the book that describes your husband's late wife uh, and like her life and kind of her holiness. And, uh, it was, it was first, yeah, it was at that point that I first heard of, you know, like you, your husband, your family. And I was like, holy smokes, these people are special, but short of embarrassing you, we're going to talk about Edith Stein.
1: Yeah, you are embarrassing me. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. That's okay. No, no, listen, praise God. I mean, um, our lives are somewhat mysterious to us. I think, um, that's kind of all I have to say about it right now. But, um, if at any point the things that, kind of guys placed in our path, serve as an inspiration to other people, then, you know, praise praise be to God.
0: Yeah. I think about often, um, maybe I repeat this too much. Maybe it's become a trope and not a sincere thought. Regardless, who cares about sincerity? Moving on. Um, <laughs> I, I think that like, we're living our lives and as we go along, we're interpreting our lives. And um, I think you get better both at living and at interpreting. And uh, when the two come together, you know, like on Christmas, around the family table, like eating cured ham. It's really sweet because by and large, the living part feels like a dumpster fire and the interpreting part feels like walking through a cave. Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, I think you've got it all nailed I, I'm sure they're gonna assign you to the the young friars, right? To just get all of this inspiration. You're gonna be like, guys, it's it's eating ham at the holidays and it's a dumpster fire and a cave. And they're gonna you're like, take yeah. him off. Um but you're not wrong, um and in fact, if we could get to it um at some point, actually, I think Edith Stein has something to say about this. She has this comment about what it means to be getting clear about ourselves, and that we're we're not selves that are static we're selves selves that are developing I mean hopefully right, we're either getting better or we're getting worse, but the soul isn't meant to be stationary and she says something like it's really tough to get clarity in relation to the process because we see that we're becoming. (laughs) So I don't know if it's, it works with your cave analogy, but, but yeah, it's, it's really tough to um, interpret, to live and interpret in the same moment Um, possible with grace, but it's, I think it's a struggle.
0: Yeah. I don't know that I have, yeah, like a, a better, well, I don't have a good image. I've already made that manifest by the fact that I described it as a combo (laughs) dumpster fire cave walk. (laughs) um but like certainly our it seems as if our lives are unfolding in two axes um you know and whereas like angels it seems like their lives are unfolding in one axis um or like animals it seems like their lives are unfolding in one axis different axes in the different cases but there yeah there's something just i don't know if i want to say brutal because it's just it's just human i think it's to be evaluated on its own terms there's something very human about a kind of patience with progress or a kind of patience with ongoing, you know, like revelation and mediation of life, because uh, certainly it's a temptation to be like, yeah, I don't want to even bother figuring this out. I'm just going to rootle around in yeah. my trough and eat right. whatever swill is afforded to me or right. to say, like, I want to have this all figured out yesterday. And uh, until such time as I do, I will foreclose on the possibility yeah. of a meaningful life.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, that's that's absolutely right. Or we are we we close it in a box and don't look at it, kind of hope that it'll just go away or like next time we open the box it'll look better. Uh but yeah, it's it's um it's it's really humbling. It's humbling to be a yeah. person. <laughs> it,
0: it is provided that one is open to such humbling. Right. Uh, if if not, it's just grind you into the grounding, whatever the uh yeah. form of that is.
1: <laughs> I've I've been thinking as we're starting Lent how, you know, I pray a lot. For humility as a virtue. And I was kind of thinking, well, if you're praying for humility, you kind of have to get ready to be humiliated, right? Like, how are you going to become more humble if you don't? So I've been kind of trying to get my head around, like, why would I be surprised if that's humiliating? That's where I'm at.
0: Yeah. I guess, I mean, it's conditioned by the fact that God reveals himself in principally paternal, every once in a while maternal, but nonetheless, you know, like providential terms. Right. So it's like, we have difficulty reconciling humiliation as life lesson with good parenting, uh, I guess unless you're a parent and then you realize that it's a real possibility slash a daily occurrence. <laughs> uh, but from a certain distance, we're like, no, that can't possibly be the way that you mean to teach me. And right. then it happens and you're like, uh, yes, apparently we're doing this now. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. So- um You speak often about Edith Stein, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, uh, and you speak about her not as like a kind of curio to be kept in the cabinet, but as a woman who breathes wisdom, wisdom for contemporary age. When uh, you first discovered uh, St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross, I'll just say that for the most part because I like preferring saints' names, even if they're less recognizable to a lay audience. Um, when you first discovered her, like, what was it about her that captured your attention or what was it about her that, that kind of spoke to you? Like, this is part of who I am. This is part of what I meant to, to tell.
1: Yeah. Um, so I first read, uh, little passages from the essays on women when I was in high school. So I was blessed to have a a really great, um, English literature professor at a girl's high school, in fact, near Washington, DC, I was at Oak Crest and this teacher of mine, um, yeah, she, I don't remember exactly the format if she just shared an essay with us or, but I read, um, I read some of those passages about what the soul of a woman was meant to be like. And I remember just thinking like, this is the coolest thing I've ever read. Like you're, I mean, you're, you're 16 or you're 17 and you're just, I, you know, some of those things we just shared with each other, but at that age, man, I mean, you just don't know where you're going my home life was a little bit troubled at the time. Um, I had trouble making friends at the time. <laughs> Thank be to God, I don't know, but there were a lot of things that weren't, you know, maybe fulfilling in my life at the time. And I was struggling with that, um, trying to grow closer to God, but really kind of get an image of what I was meant to be like. I didn't feel like I fit in with my friends in high school very much. Um, I like to study a lot more than my friends did. And I was sort of serious as a person. And a lot of high school students, actually, I've come to learn a lot of college students aren't that serious. And so I kind of felt like alone in a lot of ways. And um, I don't want to make this out to be what it wasn't. But when I read Edith Stein, I thought, here's somebody that kind of gets what I'm thinking about. Like, I just thought, like, it clicked. I thought, okay, I want to keep reading this. I liked it so much, I I excerpted that quote about um, the 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 ideal image of the gestalt of the female soul in the whole the whole part you know about the 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 soul is meant to be warm and quiet and self-contained and that whole image i put it in my yearbook it's like my favorite quote that year um so whatever it was and you know, i'm kind of just trying to look back and i think self-reflection at such a distance 30 years now it's hard to do it but um i'll just say that for me it was a kind of love at first sight i mean when i read this i thought this is serious um, it's it's wise it's it's not um, it's not attempting to have all the answers like you read her and you think man she's informed so much but it's also humble she'll say outright when things are difficult or not so easy for us to see So that was it for me I just I read it as a 16 year old and thought I'm not gonna. Ever not read this? Like this is this is kind of like a motto or an anthem or something that I'm going to keep consulting, and it and it really has been that in my life. Um, It's never been cold on the shelf for too long.
0: (laughs) There's a sense in which when you read, whether fiction or nonfiction, and an author manages to capture, like, like what you've thought, but never in such coherent fashion. Like when an author gives a kind of vocabulary and grammar for the enunciation of. Emotion, sentiment, feeling, thoughts, aspiration, hope. And it all comes together and you recognize yourself. And it's kind of like one of those, on the one hand, get out of my head moments. But on the other hand, profoundly consoling moments because it's like, ah, yes, there is someone who is closer to me than my confusion about life. Right. Um, and like at root, that's really what I wanted all along. I said yeah. that I wanted answers and I do want answers. You know, like right. there's a kind of teleological striving that's at work here. But I really just wanted someone to like be with me without being, you know, too kind of romantic about it, but like someone to be with me in that. Like if someone could truly look me in the eyes and say, I understand and I could trust that person, Mm -hmm. that would make all the difference. And I think it's like, it's with authors like her yeah, or with you know, like everyone has his or her own, but like, yeah, there's something about that. That's so profoundly consoling.
1: Yes. So my husband sometimes says about why he studied Aristotle. He says something, you know, he'd been philosophy student for a long time. And when he, when he sort of first started really reading Aristotle in the Greek, which took him a long time to be able to do that um, and started to really understand, he said it was for him, it was the difference between other philosophers you read because they were interesting or they were important or they had something to teach about how they structured their arguments. He said, but when he read Aristotle, he thought this is someone you want to think like this person. And he had this overwhelming thought that the right thing to do in the presence of that kind of a mind would be to try to disciple yourself after this person. Um, and I mean, for him, of course, that evolved. This is, this is, you know, when he was still becoming a Christian and and making the faith his own. But um, I would say that that was kind of my reaction to reading Edith Stein as a young person was, I just, I don't want to just know what she said. I want to think like she thinks. And um, yeah, so it was, it was certainly uh, and and you know what, by the way, like, I think it goes in another way too, which if I can be so bold as to say it, maybe you have authors like this for you too. Um, I felt that I really understood her, <laughs> you know, and not, not in an expert sense, but I thought like, does any, like, you know, when you, I don't know, do people feel this way when they first read the gospel? I hope they do, right? They kind of want to run around and say, has anybody even paid attention to this? Like, do you know what she's saying? This is so good and important. And that sense of like, I've just heard really good news. I've met a person that you should meet, which is, I think, how we, we, we want to approach a Christian life in general. Like, here's somebody you definitely have to meet. It's going to change your life if you can meet this person. And I do think that authentic holiness, um, in a you know, in a saint, somebody who's an intellectual and a saint, that's a special thing. But that that's um, that ought to be like that's a natural reaction to holiness. (laughs) Like, I just I've got to share this person and their their holiness with you. So I definitely felt that early on. I didn't really have an appreciation for what that looked like in me or would look like later in my life. But I kind of had that thought, like, is anybody else not, you know, like, are you not seeing this? Like why isn't everybody talking about it? this? Is the best thing ever. So yeah, whatever that is, maybe that just turns out to be kind of a kind of personal charism. You think like I got to talk about this person. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, so, I have had a somewhat similar experience. Um, I hesitate to say the same experience because of pertinent differences, mm-hmm. but um mm-hmm. I heard a lecture given by Eleanor Stump, my freshman year of college. she was describing Aquinas on the nature of love, and it like it immediately converted me yeah in the sense that I'd had an experience of human relationships, yeah uh, you know, to that point, mostly superficial, but still you know like a kind of intimation of profundity to follow. And then she described love uh, with a kind of precision and clarity. And I was like, holy smokes. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I was like, that's whoever, whoever saw that Mm. and uh, perceived that uh, I want to, yeah, again, I want to think like him. And then I read a book about St. Thomas Aquinas, super charming. One of these historical fiction things that Louis DeWall did called the quiet light. Mm -hmm. And um, at the end of which I was like, I think I want to love like that. So for me, it was, it was a kind of comprehensive claim. It was like yeah. I just want to I want to be like that. not in the right. sense like I want to water around like a little duckling behind a mama duck no. and just like ape his movements, but right. I want to know the Lord and love the Lord in the way in which he knows the Lord and love the Lord because it has such deep a resonance. and I think the right. only way that I can interpret that resonance is like claim
1: yep. yeah yeah I, <laughs> I mean i'm I'm like so I'm so hearing what you're saying. it's a you know exactly the kind of thing. Um, and I think for a young person to encounter that kind of a mind, I mean, I had a little bit of an experience similar to that later, although not as not as direct uh, when I first read the Apologia by John Henry Newman at a time when I was really kind of intellectually uh, lost later in college. So there's a there's a diversion that happens later. Um, but I think for a young person to encounter that kind of greatness and holiness, um, not the strength of that sort of intellectual virtue, but then to to recognize like this is not a this is not a person who's passed away right this is there's a person who's very much alive in christ and that that takes that possibility of encountering in a really i don't know in a personal way right so you so to you like aquinas's thought and his it's right it's not just his thought right his description of a of a of a possibility like that you were made for this sort of love like and this is real <laughs> and his description of this just resonates with you and it reaches in and grabs you converts you on the spot that possibility is totally rationalized and like ennobled and made possible by the fact that St. Thomas Aquinas and Edith Stein and John Henry Newman, they're like working and active in our lives. I mean, just think about that for a second. Like the people who are out there idolizing their favorite author or whatever that looks like, they want to reach into that kind of infinity, right? But it's it's not on offer. But with the saints, it's on offer.
0: Yeah. I, I was in a – gosh, where was I? I was in Nashville visiting with the sisters, and um, they had me at one of their schools. Uh, they have a handful of schools there in Nashville where they have sisters assigned. Um, and I was with an eighth-grade class, and they had, like, submitted their questions before, and I was pulling out from, like, a a bucket or a jug or whatever, like, and just answering random questions. And most of them were just silly. Uh, so it was, like, 90% silly and then 10% evangelical. I should say it's 100% evangelical with a 90% silly tinge. Um, but uh, like one of the last questions they ask are, or they asked was, um, if you can meet like three famous people, who would you meet? Mm-hmm. And I wasn't even like playing the pious fool, being like, yeah. "Well, I'll, I'll answer this question in a way <laughs> you don't expect." But I said, "I'd like to meet Saint Jean de Brebeuf." St. Maximilian Kolbe mm-hmm. and St. Thomas Aquinas, and yep. these like eighth grade boys in the back, you know, like all of you know, one hundred and twelve pounds, just just flexing the whole day long, or like wait, like <laughs> like saints.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, yeah, like who would you meet?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's too funny. Like, m-
0: my famous people are terribly alive. They right. are, right. you know, kind of. Excellent human beings to the utmost extent, but okay. Um, so turning then <laughs> so to yeah. uh, to Edith Stein, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. this this uh, kind of encounter that you described was mediated specifically by her writings on women and this mm-hmm. idea of the feminine kind of soul, of, like feminine Gestalt, mm-hmm. as it were. Um, so, is there a way in which to kind of encapsulate that teaching? Or do you think for people who aren't used to reading Edith Stein or might not have the background in scholastic mm-hmm. theology and mm-hmm. in kind of Phenomenological philosophy. Who might not necessarily gain easy access to the insights can find inroads to the heart of the matter.
1: Mm-hmm. At the heart of her her ideas about the feminine soul. Yeah, I mean, for what you'd have to think about with that part of her work is it's probably easiest for somebody who's not really familiar. I mean, I don't think you need the phenomenology or the philosophy. This is somebody who, I mean, as a personal um her her life. This is somebody who um a lot of the external characteristics of her life would have looked pretty abnormal from the perspective of what was normal for the life of a woman in Germany at that time. And we, you know, I think this is why she's so she draws people. She was uh, you know, this really excellent student. And at that time in Germany, she would have had as a young woman to have mastered, you know, a lot of logic, a lot of linguistics, a lot of um really dry material that I just it's not really great fun for anybody to do even f- very very rare for a woman in her time to to do that um she did not feel from a young age probably called to marriage and family life um but she obviously reading her 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 work she had a very keen sense of a kind of yeah, the spirit of womanhood. So ultimately cutting to the chase, what did she say? Well, she, she has this deep insight, which is that the essence of, of womanhood, the essence of being a woman is a kind of spiritual nurturing, a kind of welcoming of the other person. And some of these words can sound really um, cliche and just kind of like, oh yeah, welcoming and, you know, hospitality and, you know, all, but, but actually she's, (laughs) she's going to get at that like pretty deep. But I think so this idea that, like, even if you don't necessarily have all the external signs of femininity, and we think about like all of our gender confusion today, but right, you maybe don't, you you want to study something that's masculine. You want to become a philosopher. You don't think you're probably going to get married and have children, but it that doesn't yet, co- those are just the philosophical accidents in a sense, like what's the core of being a woman? And so she just describes this with such precision and such kind of astonishing clarity that, um. It, it can one at the same time, give you something to go after you go like, Oh, okay. So, you know, to what extent am I doing these things in my life? Like it's, it's a, it's a thing that you are, you are a woman, but it's also a goal, right? It's a goal to become more deeply a woman So who you are. So, so she gives you this goal, right? Which is like to be warm and to be nurturing and essentially uh, uh, like if we were to boil it down to see the potential for human perfection in another person and to nurture it, like to to will it, to love it, to nurture it, to give it what it needs to grow. And so she talks about how you know you can't do that if you're too full of yourself. You kind of get in there and you get in the way and you can't do it if you're yourself too immature. You have to be mature and in possession of your faculties. So it's this like really serious picture of what it would look like to orient your whole being to recognizing the possibility of perfection in, in another person and assisting it. Right. So what I've just described is something you can do regardless of whether you're called to get married and have babies per se. So I don't know if that's uh, a good introduction. So what we, in the tradition, we'll call this spiritual motherhood, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. So against the backdrop of, okay, so let's think about it in these terms. Um, I think sometimes a kind of masculine gestalt is sometimes described as a certain, yeah, like authority and or distance, which looks beyond particulars uh, and makes decisions difficult decisions, which might otherwise be difficult uh, in light of some perceived common good or some perceived, you know, like goal to be pursued. Uh, so, like the classic example being the general in the army. He knows that he's sending, you know, twelve percent of his soldiers to their death, but for the common good of the Republic, which he is defending against an unjust attack. He, while still, you know, having due affection for those in his care, sends them. Um, And so it seems like the risk of, you know, a kind of masculine soul or masculine gestalt or quintessentially masculine virtues is a kind of negligence, you know, because it seems like on account of the fact that there is this authority cum distance that one can excuse himself from involvement in the lives of others or from genuine solicitude for the good of others, um, such as, you know, how one might play out a kind of contrary to what you describe. Then with respect to what you describe, I think that a lot of people no, maybe not a lot of people, but some people will describe the risk of having access to the inmost center of the person comes with it a great responsibility, because there is a risk then of like tinkering or manipulating constantly taking the temperature so as to establish the basis of relationships, which aim ultimately to be controlled. So it seems like what you're describing is is kind of like tending unto a flourishing, tending unto a fulfillment, both for the woman and then for those whom she may or may not be, but may be called to, you know, kind of nurture in the way that you describe, but that there are these risks. Um, so how might you know Saint Teresa Benedict of the Cross or in your kind of explication of her how might one you know cultivate the good aspects minimize the bad aspects i mean how might one kind of perfect this with the cultivation of certain virtues
1: mm-hmm. right um so she's pretty clear that she thinks none of this can really be perfected uh and wait, so let's just say perfection is the the other side of avoiding risks right um she thinks none of this can be perfected apart from um apart from a, a pretty serious devotion to prayer and the sacraments. And she basically thinks, um, I mean, she she see well, I think it's fair. I mean, I think as I think we tend to be able to call our fellow, you know, as a woman to call our my fellow sisters in Christ to kind of a higher standard. My, you know, when I see my husband as a father, he's tougher on the sons than I am and, and maybe tougher on the daughters. Um, I think that Edith Stein as a thinker is um, maybe she's a little tougher on the ladies, but she just kind of says, look, like you can look in the world and you can find all kinds of distorted femininity. She does comment on exactly some of the risks you raise. She has a little extended couple of passages where she m- meditates on some of the work of um, Sigrid Unset, actually, it picks out some of the characters in those novels as as examples of that exactly the thing you just described, like womanhood that kind of is manipulative or maybe self-serving or something like that. But she's just kind of going to lay it bare, which is, I think, one reason she's not picked up by the feminists of the 20th century. And she says you're going to avoid this by, well, number one, sort of recognizing you may have an unhealthy interest in people's inner lives, right? This is why she thinks women gossip too much. They just, they unhealthy interest in the lives of people we we can't um we can't mother, right? I mean there's like if somebody i've never met but i want to read all about their relationships like that's twisted. But we all we all sort of have that inclination, right? Um women especially. So she says, "Well, yeah, you got to know that that's going to be a problem." But then like she just cuts right to the chase. Look, you're going to find the capacity to direct this this gift in the right way like in front of the blessed sacrament. So Yeah. I mean, it's like, she's not going to mess around on that one.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Maybe at the end of the episode, I could get some hot takes on People magazine Mm -hmm. and Hallmark movies.
1: There we go. Yeah. Two two probably (laughs) abuses of this feminine genius. Yeah, probably.
0: (laughs) Um, Okay. Now, from what I understand, Edith Stein, uh, when describing herself, you know, identifies some of these things. But she also thinks that she evinces kind of quintessentially masculine virtues. And certainly, like, in her biography, she's interested in, you know, like, philosophy, yeah. which qua profession is probably, like, 85% male-dominated. Yeah. Um. And she didn't seem to have an interest in marriage. And she, you know, like, is involved in various workplace relationships, some of which she suffered as a result of, you know, which, yeah. you know, she felt herself kind of ill-used by precisely on account of the fact that she wasn't a ma- So, like... When when we talk about quintessentially feminine, quintessentially masculine, is there a risk of falling into gender stereotypes that don't actually cut across the grain or is it a matter of like a kind of predominance of virtues that, I mean, you don't have to like wade into the whole feminist question, but like, I think people are looking for clarity as to like what is meant when we talk about these. Often enough in Catholic conversations, it gets in the direction of, you know, gender complementarity, but I don't know what you have to say about that.
1: Yeah, I think it's worth spending a little time on the way she thought about, I mean, I kind of touched on before. You've touched on it. I mean, I, it's it seems clear that part of the way, part of um, what she's up to is looking into deeper, deeper the deeper meaning of our sexuality, our gender, so to speak. I've actually tried to make the defense. We should go ahead and use the word gender. I know that a lot of the people who are sort of promoting, I guess we call like sex realism in these debates about gender these days, say like gender is a sort of a silly term. We shouldn't like shouldn't use it. We should just always say sex. Um I don't I kind of make the argument that I think there's something to what she's getting at. Um so she uh she just says look um uh, no no, first of all like you can't read her work on women and think like she doesn't have a handle on what's going on with women. She also spent time I should say like although she's a philosopher and a, and a very serious one and um she spent time as a Red Cross nurse in the in the First World War. Um she took care of her mom when she was home. She loved her mom a lot, even though she injured her mom greatly when she abandoned her Jewish faith as a young woman. So she's kind of complicated relationship, but she admired her mom a lot. Um, So all that's just to say that she, she obviously appreciates what it means to be a woman deeply. Um, And then actually like her descriptions of the vocation of woman, which she, she thinks of it as united. It's not like religious sisters are called to some other thing and, women who are married are called to some other thing. She says, look, basically at the bottom of it all, the orientation of a woman is to achieve spousal union. And that spousal union is meant to be fruitful. And of course, like the ultimate destiny of our soul, which is the the vocation of the religious person is to to give witness to the destiny of the soul. She just thinks she's going to cut right to that place in life and she's going to, um, she's it's a it's a great a great beauty so when she describes what it means to be a bride of christ a spouse of christ as a as a woman religious you can't doubt that she's in deep contact with her feminine nature even though she might i mean certainly the pictures you see of her most of them are not smiling um she did seem like a kind of a serious person um maybe it's a good moment to just say she basically thought look there's three ways you participate in human nature this isn't to mystic. This is like her drawing up of like a kind of a quick taxonomy. She says, look, we're all, we're all human beings. And qua human being, we all have the same destiny, which is God. Um, or perfected human nature, she'll also say. She'll say perfected human nature, which is Jesus Christ. And then she'll say, but then we are man or woman. And if we're man or woman, that has a particular telos, right? So the telos of being a woman has a particular character to it. And that's essentially spiritual motherhood for a woman and then that could take a variety of expressions marriage and children uh religious life for women but she doesn't exclude that you could be single working in the world and still live out this spiritual motherhood but then she puts a lot of weight on number three when she says it's just like all those accidents of your personality so she she gets a lot of variation right the op she can she can work with a lot of types of women in this framework because she says look you you could be a woman and called to spiritual motherhood, but you could have all these accidental characteristics or likes or dislikes that could put you in a box that makes you maybe even a little bit abnormal for a woman or a man. Um, I think that threefold thing does a lot of work for her, and it's I think it's potentially freeing understood properly. So there's there's obviously complete equality in the first category. We're all members of the human race with the same eternal destiny. Then you've got difference. In that second category. And then you've got, she says actually complete uniqueness in the third category. She says it's not possible to generalize about individual nature uh, as you can generalize about perfected womanhood or perfected manhood. Um, So she really wants to say like as individuals, there's something unique and unrepeatable and different that cannot be summed up. And it's okay if in your uniqueness, you do things that are maybe a little bit like abnormal or outside of the normal path for, um, the cultural context.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, so presumably, uh, St. Teresa Benedict of the cross could not anticipate the, uh, current climate of what would we call it? Transgender ideology or transgender confusion. Um, I don't know that anybody could predict that in the 1930s and forties, or maybe some people did. I haven't read them all. Um, (laughs) but, uh, What what would you how would you respond uh, to someone who says, you know, we need to hold for X anthropology or Y anthropology and definitely not Z anthropology. That is to say that of St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross, because it seems like this notion of a kind of feminine soul and or masculine soul would, you know, kind of belie uh, the type of thing for which we are advocating here, namely that, you know, biological species matters and that uh the kind of specifying or determining factor of of matter is paramount you know whatever somebody might might argue in, along those lines how do you how do you volley back or do you volley back
1: yeah well i don't know i'm not in, i'm not directly in those debates um thankfully that's <laughs> someone else's job i feel like that would be very depressing to have to spend all my time vo- <laughs> volleying back on that point can i say that yeah. <laughs> but um i think that we are not served in general um by pretending as if um pretending as if it's not possible for us to keep two apparently contradictory truths in mind right and there's lots of aspects of human life that present to us things that seem seem contradictory right but they uh, we know in the light of faith they're not <laughs> um and the the solution typically isn't to just deny one of them right and so what we're talking about here is maybe like the po- the problem where we say like well there's a there's a truth about female nature and there's also a truth about universal human nature <clears throat> and that, um, they're both true. Um, I'm sorry.
0: <clears throat> You're good.
1: I think the best example of this, I think about <clears throat> the truth about, um, Jesus Christ as a man. So he's a man, he's completely a man, <laughs> he's completely God. And that doesn't seem very easy to figure out, right? Right. And our faith doesn't say like, yeah, actually he's some kind of weird hybrid. He's not some middle ground. He's not half God, half man. What we're supposed to just wrap our heads around is like, he's fully God and he's fully man. So um, we can be fully lots of things, but we are fully, I'm, I am fully a woman, but I'm fully a human being. And my my telos is a, as a human person, my, my end is God. And I share that with you, even though all of no, certainly many, maybe not all, but many of our accidents are very different. Um, and our participation in sexual differentiation is completely different. So I think that we're not served in general by trying to oversimplify some of these things. It actually, like young people and older people are are actually able to sort of understand deeply that many aspects of the reality that god created because he's a lot more interesting than we are <laughs> admit of these apparent contradictions um i mean let's 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 do free will for a minute i mean that you're the expert on that so I'd, be, I'd go like well i can't even give you an accounting of free will how is it possible that god has all this foreknowledge and i'm still free i mean right like we could just pick through it right the the faith our faith is riddled with these sorts of apparent contradictions. And we don't say, right, like, well, one half of this isn't true. Um, and I think that that's, for me, that's what I find in her work, right, is like, well, okay, look, it could look, like, suppose you have all these accidental characteristics that make you feel or look, do things that are a little bit more manly. That's fine. You can do, you could be that. Those are just accidents. It doesn't touch that you're still a woman and, and like, you're going to find, you're going to, you're going to express this deep um. This deep, I mean, she would actually say like this seed, the seed that's in you. So she likes these plant images and she would say, well, look, there's a seed of femininity in you. And if you have access to the things that feed your seed, like, okay, we're using these plant images, grace and the sacraments, whether you're a construction worker or an analytic philosopher, you are still going to have this progress towards perfected womanhood. Yeah. Is that freeing? I don't know. I think it's freeing. To me, it is. To me, it's freeing. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah i mean the, the truth is always freeing and my, my my experience is um it seems like it's become more common in the 21st century to formulate a depending on the basis of contrariety than on the basis of principles mm-hmm. so it's like rather than be like okay right. these things are furnished by reason or these things are furnished by revelation and i'm going to argue on the basis thereof in concert with the tradition in order to determine certain conclusions which thereby you know kind of track with reality. It's more it's more like um this person whom I don't like said X. <laughs> so I'm gonna say not X. No, father, you're not <laughs> suggesting that our
1: public discourse is like juvenile. Um,
0: I I would bad. never suggest that. Which is why when you push back against volleyback no. as language, I yeah. was infinitely pleased because I like to think of my engagements as mostly in the in the genre of whimsy rather than in the genre of argument. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I think that that's, listen, 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 I think you're right. I'm ready. I, certainly that's my view, right? Which is, I'm not, I mean, certainly as a profession, my job isn't to be out there kind of fighting against people in different spaces, but more than that, like I would have thought traveling for the TI to lots and lots of college campuses where I'm speaking under the banner of the feminine soul, <laughs> what it could possibly be to be to have a feminine soul. I would have thought there'd be, I don't know, argument back and forth and a lot of maybe, and I've found really basically none. Um, And you know, you can add it up, you must have it somewhere. It's it's with a lot of campuses. I mean, it's at least 20 or 30 (laughs) at this point, mostly, you know, big state schools. Um, Why is that? And I think it's because, so you went with whimsy. I mean, that's fine. You just, you go with whimsy but i just say look i mean here we have this like compelling person who wrote a lot of interesting stuff and my my job here isn't to kind of baptize it or say that it's true or not true let's just try to understand it right and then just get like kind of work through it and um yeah so i don't think of myself as making an argument in that sense i'm not here to argue for her position obviously i have a lot of sympathy with it right but i'm not here to make an argument just to like let's just try to understand it and I think that that's been appealing to people, maybe not only because it's disarming, but also, as you say, people are sick of, like, everything's a culture war. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, maybe, maybe. I mean, this is to make a judgment for which I'm not myself, you know, fit, but it could also be, like, a matter of methodology. I've noticed that, you know, one makes arguments in the kind of classic sense of arguments, like clarifications or communal deliber- deliberations, on the basis of one's training. Mm. You're trained as an economist. Yeah. So Like a lot of what you're going to be doing is like gathering data, interpreting data, helping other people to interpret data so that way they can formulate policy. Um, So it's going to, you know, it's going to be getting you a certain disposition vis-a-vis the texts and then a certain disposition vis-a-vis the pedagogy. Um, I am by training a teacher and a preacher Mm -hmm. of like a different sort. Um, and for me, the potential excess is demagoguery because it's like revelation gives you infinite power <laughs> and there's a real risk of abusing that. It's like I know everything always and those who would say otherwise, I will fell uh, and I will like, you know, stride over them. their fallen corpses like Colossus of old, um, which is, you know, it's a real risk. Um, so I think that for me, like the whimsiest, is in, in part to take the edge off. The authority, but maybe I oughtn't to take the edge off an authority. I should just find ways in which to actually communicate with authority, which are more, yeah, paternal. Maybe that's, maybe to bring it back to Edith, Stein. but like, I I think that's like, I was ordained at the age of what, like 27? Mm-hmm. Like, a, like a tall child. Yeah. Um, and like, so spiritual paternity at like the beginning of my priesthood, I was like, what does that even mean? I'm like, right. I'm more of a crazy uncle than I am yeah, like yeah. a
1: spiritual <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes. I, you know, like
0: after however long, 10 years, it's like, yeah, I think it's, it makes more sense now. So yeah. maybe that's part of the story as well.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't know what do the, what do the kids say these days? I feel you. I mean, that was <laughs> like, <laughs> I became a mother to kids that were like half my age when I was 23. I was, I was not as tall as you are, but I was definitely a, a young mother, right? I had no idea what to do. Right. Um. And yeah, today it feels natural and normal, but when I was 23, it did not feel natural or normal and, um, so you just, but, but what does it mean? It means you weren't a mother or you weren't a spiritual father at the age of 27. No, like you were, you were just a young one, like a, not a super good one, you know, you were like, uh, um, and that's, I mean, that's like, um, I mean, I, you know, I, I often talk to the kids who are around for that phase of my motherhood and you're like, oh, my, you know, I'm so sorry. I just like did everything wrong. Right. Um, the beautiful thing is of course, like there's, there's some value in that kind of recognizing that y- you grow. Um, but yeah, hundred percent also to your point about fatherhood. And I think as, as parents having little toddlers who then grow up, I mean, uh, there is, there is, um, there are ways in which you become a better parent and there are ways in which you become a worse parent <laughs> or, or, you know, maybe that's just a funny way of highlighting, like the things there's like a season or something like that. So your oldest child, who's like the child of your young parenthood, like whoever you were teaching when you were 27, they'll look back and they'll think like, thank goodness, you know, father was this kind of a dad to us. And like, I see that, and you'll see those strengths. So like my oldest has certain strengths and certain weaknesses and the weaknesses are all our fault, you know, Um, and the strengths, like he was just born with them. But, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but the point is an oldest child and a youngest child, like probably destined by God or meant by God to look different, because uh, yeah, yeah. they're making us the parents we become in lots of ways, right? And uh, yeah, and that's like it can't not be part of the plan, right? <laughs> so
0: yeah, right. It's like as you refine your soul craft, yeah, you also gradually give up. <laughs> yeah, I
1: know. yeah. There's no bedtimes in my house, by the way. Like that is gone. Like there's no there's no routine. There's no bedtimes. Um, yeah, yeah. There's we could list a lot of other things that we've let and co- let go of. Yeah,
0: yeah. As could I, and I've only been a priest for eight <laughs> years. So my and like yeah, no. the demands on my time and energy are far less significant and yeah. far less animate. Yeah. So here we are.
1: Yeah. Well, and returning to Edith Stein, I mean, remember that she wrote these essays on women largely because she was a teacher and at a Dominican school in Speer for I think at least eight years. I think it was about eight years. So she was like where you are, uh, reflecting on her maternity and watching the, the kids grow up and stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, look at the richness that's come out of that, right? She, like, you think, like, well, where'd she get all this? I mean, it's not, it wasn't, wasn't her philosophical interest, actually, to write about women or education. She did it because people wanted her to. Like, they said, could you give us a lecture about this? And she was known to be smart and interesting, so... <laughs> But thank goodness, like, I don't think her philosophy is getting read as much today as her, her essays on women.
0: Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, my introduction to her, and we're kind of coming to the end now, but my introductions to her were largely the stories about the end of her life. Yeah. And as Solon says, call no man happy until he dies. Yeah. And if that's the criteria, then she died a very happy woman in the midst of yeah. bleakest of circumstances. Right. Because just like the testimony of the spiritual maternity that she exercised, on her way to her death. Right. Like at the Vesterborg Transit Camp. And, right. Yeah, I mean, like, it's just, it's astonishing. It's astonishing. The degree to which, yeah, she lived the things that she described without, like, a a kind of overly conscious sense of the fulfillment of her own philosophy. It was just, like, it was, it was philosophy of life, not in the cheap way in which that term covers phenomena in the early 20th century, but, like, right. it was just who she was, which is beautiful.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah we are coming to the end of our time. Apropos of motherhood, mm-hmm. y- you wrote a book recently about motherhood. Can you say a word about that? <laughs>
1: sure. Um, yes. It's a, it's a book called, it's called Hannah's Children. And um, in fact, I, I'm i proud to say it. So Hannah's Children is the title of the book. Hannah refers to the biblical Hannah. Hannah is also the name of a character you meet in the book. And I'll tell you about it in a minute, but just to connect it to Edith Stein. Um, a lot of readers of the book will notice that I do engage in my book a lot of a lot of biblical Hebraic ideas from the Hebrew scriptures about childbearing and about God's providence. And that's something I would really want to credit Edith Stein's, you know, maybe spirit or, or her prayers, right? Because she's somebody who's influenced me for such a long time. So I think she's got her her fingerprints on this book. The book is called Hannah's Children, and it is um, really about the 5% of women in this country who are, uh, who have different family patterns from the standard, like get married late if ever, and don't have any children, which is what 95% of people are mostly doing. The birth rate in the country right now is exceedingly low. It's, it's catastrophically low. And there's lots of reasons for that. It's a really interesting and really tragic and heartbreaking phenomenon. Um, but I had this thought kind of an intersection of personal and professional interests about six years ago that, um, social science has largely developed as the social science of dysfunction. (laughs) We study like broken homes and crime and poverty and these things that are not really like the the vision of the creator for human life. And so I thought, well, you know, I know most people aren't having children, but there are a bunch of people having children and they're not numerous by the country's standard, but there are 5% of us that are having kids and so I thought, is it would it be possible to take a social scientist angle on this and go out and look at this group and describe them and gather data, try to interpret it, try to tell a story of like how I would interpret this with an economist's eye. Um, and so that's what I did. So I went out and talked to a bunch of people, Jewish, Mormon, evangelical, mainline Protestants, Catholics, and collected up their stories, spent three years trying to figure out what it all meant. And then I I put it together in a book, which is coming out next month. <laughs> That's awesome. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, are does your story feature in there at all, or do you uh, omit yourself?
1: I mostly, I mostly omitted myself. So you're, you're, okay. you're aware. I mean, I tell right in the first chapter about kind of my my own personal story, not not in great depth, but enough to kind of get you started. Because I can't pretend like this book didn't come out of my personal experience. So I yeah, just yeah. say it right up front. Um, yeah. And then here and there, when I'm reacting to the things that the women say, uh, you you catch little bits from my story. But um, I just kind of worked with what felt natural. So the the book is a, a kind of a, a moderately scholarly, but in normal to normal like lay terms, introduction to kind of the problem, this birth rate problem and what we know about it. And then I just provide these case studies and try to interpret the case studies in light of um, other things that we know and draw some conclusions about what it might take to kind of... So So the fundamental question is like, do these people like me and like maybe other people that you know... Um, are they kind of irrelevant for this modern problem of collapsing family? Like they're just kind of religious nuts out there doing their thing. Um, Right. Or is this in the best sense that we would, is there a way to describe this as totally rational behavior? Right. And if so, what are the things they would have to think and believe um, and practice? What kind of habits would they embody that that's where you'd go, okay, well, okay. So, so we can't, you know we can't just order up more of these people. but from a if you're going to design policy, what would you what would you want to think about if if this is actually a really important story? So of course, I make the case. it's a really important story, and I try to suggest like maybe which direction I think policy might be best uh, directed. Um, so the spoiler alert is i I think it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to raise the birth rate by more or less paying people to do so. like people create incentives. To do direct incentives to have more babies. But I do think if we can make more space for the church. Um, and that's that's a that's a task for policymakers is to think about ways they might be crowding out the work of the church. I'll maybe try to dial some of that back. Although we know that like people don't like policy recommendations that start with, okay, cut this, like <laughs> cut spending on this, <laughs> stop doing this. But um, but yeah, that's 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 the book. Um, so I'm really excited about it. But yeah, I mean, you're you're not wrong. Like this in a sense, like comes right out of this early interest in, um, trying to reveal to people, trying to help reveal the, the mystery of what it means to be a woman, which sounds also kind of cheesy, right, right now. But, um, <laughs> like, you know, there's all these jokes, like men don't understand women and women don't understand women, but, uh, there's like, there's like a work to be done there. And, um, yeah. so it's, it's a little stab at that. A stab. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Hey great.
0: But in the end, God understands women. So (laughs) I don't know. As (laughs) long as you've got that backstop. Let's say, yeah,
1: let's, let's say that's right. Uh, I mean, right. It's interesting, right? Like our marriages will fall away, right? And all these things of this world will fall away. Um, but our maleness and our femaleness won't fall away as I understand it. I mean, the blessed mother won't cease to be the blessed mother, right? And Jesus Christ won't cease to be the man, Jesus Christ. Um, so we, it's important to think about what glorified perfected womanhood is like, right? Cause that's how we're going to be forever. <laughs> and it's going to be pretty interesting. And probably like, probably we get glimpses of it today, but we probably don't anticipate the full glory of it. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's like, it's, it's not like other things that are temporal that are passing away. That's not worth thinking about this. This is,
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like a dumpster fire in a cave. Dumpster fire in a cave. (laughs) Correct. Yeah, Yeah, correct.
1: (laughs) Well, thanks a lot.
0: Oh yeah, my joy. Thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Hope to uh, see you again either here or in person soon.
0: Yep. Since we are not too far afield, I think I'm doing something over at CUA next week. and then Presumably I'll be doing something at CUA. For the rest of my life, in small, small, small portions or snatches. You pro- so you probably will be. I look forward to seeing so, you at, at one or two. Or yeah, I'll
1: those. probably be at part of that that panel, or mo- maybe most of it, because um, okay. the book that you guys are discussing, which I haven't read, but it's <laughs> written by a, a a good friend who used used to teach her. Um, That's awesome. And I'm probably supposed okay. to know what's in a book, but.
0: Um, I'll just wait to the panel.
1: (laughs) Did you read it? (laughs) Yeah, I would
0: admit to similar things on the air, but I don't want the record of those to exist ad eternitatem. So uh, at the time of the actual panel itself, I'll make that judgment. So, Lord, save us from overly busy schedules. Amen. Oh, my goodness. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Amen. (laughs) All right, turning, turning to you then, the listener, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Off-Campus Conversations on the Thomistic Institute podcast. If you haven't yet subscribed, whether on YouTube or on your podcast app, please do so. So that way we can be in your ear or before your eyes with greater frequency. Unless that's not good for you, and then don't bother, and then just watch and or listen whenever it suits your fancy, or quit it entirely and enjoy more silence in your life. We support all things which conduce to spiritual growth, even when it means no longer checking in. So know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on the Thomistic
1: Institute podcast.